Hey, it's Mark, and this is the Curious Designer Podcast. The design industry's changed a lot, certainly this year, but over the past few years as well. And one of the questions I'm getting asked more and more regularly is how do I put my best foot forward for a design interview? This question comes with so many different variants and flavors, and I wanted to address this head on. I've just got off an Ask Me Anything on ADP list on design interviews, and it was so much fun. The questions that I got from the audience were insane, and probably the things that are top of mind for you if you're listening to this episode. I certainly don't have all the answers, but here's my best guess, given my experience so far. I hope it's helpful. So the first question is, what can you do to stand out among other designers in a really competitive market? Um, I think this is a great Kickstarter question, actually. For me, it's really challenging, isn't it? Because as designers, we're pushed into a very linear process. You have an introductory call with a hiring manager, maybe. Um, You might meet some of the design team. You might go through a portfolio review. You might do a live interview, a live kind of task, maybe, uh, to, to, to illustrate your design skills. And oftentimes it can be really difficult to know how to break out of the box and show who you, the individual, is in all your wonderful uniqueness. What I would say is that the best way to stand out from other designers, and this I'll be honest with you, this took me some time in my career, it really did, The best way to start is by really trying to understand, you know, what does make you different? What is your unique selling point? So I started out this call by telling you all that, yes, I'm a design leader, but I really care about design languages and design systems. That's actually, you know, that's that's where I'm at. My background's engineering and I do design systems. And in 15, 20 seconds, I can convey to you the story of how I got to where I am now. Everyone has a different reason for coming into design. And I find that certainly as you move throughout your career, you you find different pieces of design. It's a huge spectrum, right? And we find different areas where we really drill in on and we're really good or we're really curious, we're really passionate or we're really bad and we're trying to improve in those areas. And I think this is what you can do to stand out from the competition and, and and really provide that competitive advantage, you can say exactly like, this is who I am and this is what makes me special. These are the one or two things that I can do that I can guarantee nobody else will. All right, so what is the best piece of advice that you gave or received that helped a designer get hired? I've given a lot of advice over the years and I've also had a lot of advice over the years given to me. Oftentimes, you can spend a lot of time in application forms uh, that you don't often hear back from. You might get a, if, if, if you look at, you might get an email back a couple of weeks later that says you've either got an interview or, or no, I'm sorry, you haven't been considered at this time. And it can be so incredibly time consuming. What I would suggest is where possible, go onto LinkedIn and find the hiring manager. If you can find a couple of, so say for instance, you're, you're, you're applying for a design role at, uh, think of an example, at Loom, for instance, uh, the video provider. So you're like, great, okay, I want to join the product team in Loom. And uh, you might kind of have a scout around on LinkedIn and realize that they've got a growth team and they have a core experience team and they might have a video experience team. And you know exactly where this role sits. 
you can then roughly guess who the hiring manager is likely to be. It's probably going to be a design manager or a senior design manager on that team or a director, depending on the level that you're going for. And you can reach out to them directly. I always suggest going out there with a question. And it's so sneaky. It's it's so cheeky because you know that the reason is you want to strike up a conversation, right? But you can send them a connection request. And usually on LinkedIn, if you so if you're like me and you don't pay for premium, instead of obviously trying to reach out to somebody who you're not connected with and then being greeted by that lovely paywall, you can actually hit the connect button and add a note. It's not going to be very long, but it gives you enough to say like, hey, my name's Mark. I spotted that you're hiring for your team and I have a couple of questions. I'm wondering if I could have a five-minute coffee conversation with you just to understand a little bit more about the role. Now, the per- you might not get there, but I've found in my experience that more often than not, people are very receptive to that, They're, especially when it's a personal message uh, and it's not, it's, you know, it's obviously not something that's been sent out to a blanket audience. People are quite receptive. So I would definitely suggest trying that. It's a great way to strike up a conversation and allows you to really kind of get past that first stage, which is, you know, you in a list of 50 names where you're just hoping that the recruitment manager sees your CV somewhere near the top of that pile and they can read through your application at the beginning of their day before they're tired. How do you balance uh, showing your professional experience against your personality? My attitude to this has changed over the years. As you might be able to tell, I'm quite extrovert. I like to talk. Um, I'm quite uh, emotive when I speak. I use a lot of hand gestures. I'm quite smiley. When I used to, uh, certainly when I was in a design interview and I was interviewing for a new role, I used to kind of dumb it down a little bit. I used to kind of pull back a little bit and be a bit more reserved and a bit more professional. And I used to hide some of who I was. And yeah, I, I often kind of move forward through the process. And sometimes I got the role, sometimes I didn't. But I found that people didn't really get to see the true me which is a shame, right? Like we want to be able to very quickly build connections with people, as I've just said. And so what I would do is I'd always lean in to who you are. If you're a very passionate person, lean into that because it's going to show this desire and this this need for the role. Um, if you're somebody who's a little bit shy, that's fine too. You can You can use that to your advantage. You can be your authentic self and not be worried too much about how you're coming across. That way, you're going to look more natural. You're going to feel more comfortable in yourself and you're going to be able to perform better as part of that interview. Now, in terms of showing professional experience, I always start off an interview with just a quick 30 seconds, one minute on who I am, where I've came from, and what I really care about, and I think that what I really care about is almost, I mean, it's its significantly more important than what I've done in the past and, uh, you know, my accolades. It's, you know, I want people to know who I am and what I really care about. If you don't get the opportunity to do that at the beginning of an interview, if somebody dives right in or they have a structure that they want to take you down and you think, no, I, I want to be able to tell you who I am and introduce myself properly the way I've rehearsed, then my suggestion is you politely interrupt and you say, before we dive in, I would love to share just a bit of my background just so you can get the chance to know who I am. And I would love for you to do the same. That way you invite the person to the table to share a little bit about who they are. You get the opportunity to do it as well. And all of a sudden you've taken charge in the call. All right, we're burning through these. Okay, so next up, how do you talk about your design principles Ah, this is a really great question. 
So I think oftentimes um, you can get that question, which is like, tell me, you know, how do you remove subjectivity from the design process? There isn't a single answer and you're probably not going to have the amount of time you need to really explore the full answer. I always take these questions and then tell somebody about what I think personally is really important about design. So for me, and and I memorize these, I have four, which I'm immediately going to forget now as I'm talking through them, but I have four design principles that I carry with me. You can see them throughout all of my work and I talk about them a lot with my teams, with my peers, and they really frame my personal approach to design. For me, they are cohesive, inclusive, familiar, and progressive. And I think those four really kind of cover key bases. So cohesive is, you know, when we're thinking about user experience, is it connected? If we kind of take a step back from the feature we're developing, can the user understand where this fits in the broader experience that we've created for them, the product or service or or whatever? The second one is uh, inclusive. We don't just want to think about what the user is trying to achieve. We want to take a big step back again. All of my stuff tends to be taking a step back. Uh, you can see the design system and the the uh, strategic thinking bits come in there. Uh, but you want to take a big step back and you want to say, right, okay, we, we've solved for the user's goal, but do we understand the capabilities of that particular user? Do we understand their environment? Do we understand their accessibility needs? Do we speak the same language as those guys? All of those different bits and pieces. Uh, familiar, I think, is a wonderful one. Familiar is that idea of, you know, when we're trying to create a really tight user experience that people are just going to get. They're just going to get it. We're going to look and see what's out there across all of our other competitors. And we're going to pick solutions based on what we can see and what we know the user has an existing mental model for. And then finally, progressive. Typically, when I work with wonderful product owners, they are centered around the capabilities that we offer. And sometimes you can end up with feature bloat in your in your platforms, in your products and services. Progressive is all about showing the user the right capability at the right point in time. And you might think of that as progressive disclosure. Long answer, but the idea there is have four simple words or three simple words that really sum up the things that you care about and you're thinking about when you're designing. That's what makes us specialist designers. We each have our individual pivot and perspective, and I encourage you to really lean into that. All right, tips for mid-designers on how to grow as a designer and a leader in the design space. Every business has its own rubric for how designers uh, evolve and move forward in their careers. You might find that as you kind of progress through those different levels, it might talk about certain nuances of the craft. There might be some stuff on the usability side. There might be some more stuff on the visual side or the interaction side. The one thing that I think makes the key difference between an emerging leader, well, certainly a great designer and an emerging leader, is the difference to step out of the responsibilities of a designer and think more laterally across the business. So as designers, we have two unique skills, I think. One of them is we are deeply, deeply empathetic people. We can build cross-functional relationships and work with our peers like nobody else. And so the first thing that I see in emerging leaders is the ability to recognize when they've got to work cross-functionally with somebody else in the business. That might be somebody on the sales side of the business on go-to-market. 
That could be somebody in your customer success department who's having a challenge with one of your real important VIP customers. I also think that emerging leaders think internally within their teams. They look at the the rituals that the team is running through on a week-by-week basis, uh, design crits, design reviews, those sorts of things, competitive analysis of other products and tools, areas of debt or fragmentation in your experience that could be evolved over time but might not necessarily be represented on a roadmap. Emerging leaders take these topics and they make them their own. They don't ask for permission. They are there to support and help for the greater good of the team. So they're the two things that I, I see in almost every single leader. And if you're looking to take that next step in your career, I really encourage you to lean into those. Do you have any advice for junior UX designers that want to get their first UX role? I've been trying to break into the industry for a few years now. So again, I'm going to go back with that same piece of advice. Find a mentor reach out to people on LinkedIn, try and find people who can open up the door slightly for you. It's not easy. And I think while while the design industry has has benefited from these design schools, uh, and you know, it's brought a wealth of new skill and talent into the industry, undoubtedly, it's also made it harder for, for people to get their foot in the door. That is true. And I think especially now when budgets are quite tight, they're having to think very carefully about who they hire and when they hire uh, in line with their their organisational goals and budgets. I I don't think that's done any favours for for us as designers. That's made it a little bit more challenging as well. So I'd also think about, you know, um, agency work, contract work. It will be different depending on where you are in the world, but there are other opportunities available Uh, in addition to to full-time in-house roles. So during the interview, how do you discuss your NDA projects without disclosing sensitive information? It depends on how sensitive the project is. I think sometimes we assume it has a greater level of sensitivity than what it perhaps has. Also, check your NDA. Everybody's NDAs are different. So take a look and just get a bit of an understanding as to what, what that actually covers. But I would say typically... If the project is still in progress, it's top secret, it has clear market advantage, it's part of that business's IP, they would not want you sharing this with the wider world, then unfortunately, you might not be able to share it. But what you might be able to do is redact the sensitive information and adjust your story slightly. And you can even say that, hey, this one is pretty heavily under NDA. I can't talk about the specifics. But what I do want to show you is my design process and my thinking process throughout the experience. And, you know, maybe you can also show some of the key elements that really illustrate the the visual and tactile elements of your design craft. Because sometimes we forget about that. It's not all about the words, right? What is better, short case studies containing only a summary, context and goal, but highlighting a solution and impact or engaging stories with pitfalls? It depends on how long the interview is and it depends on what what they've asked you for. My default, my go-to, would be to select two. If you select two case studies, you can usually get through them in 30 to 40 minutes um, and it allows you to go in depth. Now, what I wouldn't suggest you do is talk through it as if it were a formula. Treat it like an engaging story. Start off with, you know, what are the massive challenges that you faced going throughout this? What's the summary of it? What are the highlights? What are the things that like, I'm going to tell you this up front, but I'm also going to recap it at the end. Now, one mistake that I used to make 
all the time is I thought, and people have pulled me up on this throughout my entire career, I always thought it was a really great idea to build the excitement as you're going throughout and then get to the solution at the end and say, right, great, and this is what happened. The problem is after 20 minutes, you're going to lose people. So what I suggest you do is highlight the, you know, the key highlights at the very beginning. The, like this was the project. We created a new sign-up experience to boost user activation among our enterprise accounts. And after only a month, 80% of that cohort was activated and led to 60% increased uh uh, retention of customers over the next six months. That's great. And then you can dive into the details rather than kind of saving that piece for the very end. Special note out for pitfalls. Yes, please include these. Try, don't try to make your stories perfect. They'll become unbelievable. The more grit that you can add to them, especially when it shows that maybe you didn't do something quite right and you learned from the experience and you would do it differently next time. That is worth so much. And when we talk about experience, we're not talking about the experience of things going right. You know, if you've led a career where nothing's gone wrong for 10 years, have you really, have you really led a career? Like you need the experience of things going wrong. And so highlight this, frame it, celebrate it, um, because others will celebrate the fact that you've been through it and you came out the other side. After a redundancy notice, how can I re-enter the job market effectively and secure a new position any tips or advice would greatly be appreciated. So firstly, I'm really sorry that you've been made redundant. That must be an incredibly challenging experience to go through. And I think if anything is going to take the wind out of your sails, it's that, right? So I think the first thing is you need to take a breather. Finding a new job is, is always stressful. And, uh, well, more often than not, it's stressful. You might enjoy that sort of a thing. I don't think many people do, but it can be a little bit stressful. And you need all your energy reserves. You need all your enthusiasm and you need to build your confidence. So the first thing I would say is rarely are redundancies about you, the individual. Try not to take it on your shoulders. Make sure that you are nice and confident and you're really proud of yourself. Like make sure that you, you thank yourself for all the hard work that you put in. And that's the first thing. Just take a bit of a breather. You might not be able to take time out of work. You might need to really quickly find something new, but take a second to remind yourself that you are a confident professional. You have great experience. You have a lot to offer and bring to your next role and give yourself a day, two days to get your portfolio in order. Sometimes what I see is people carrying on right up until their last day after redundancy, working just as hard. Now, while that might be admirable, you need to put yourself first. And that means making time to get your portfolio in order, uh, get your CV in order, have those conversations, reach out to those hiring managers, make sure that you're putting the right level of investment in so you won't regret it on your last day. And from there, you proceed on, you go forward, you get in touch with recruiters, you find those hiring managers, you spark up conversations and you share that CV as much as you can. And I'm sure you'll do really, really well. Okay, quits job for pursuing UX design. It's been a year and I still haven't managed to create a portfolio. Struggling with validation of problem statement. I think what this is really getting at is the fact that it's it's nigh on impossible to create a portfolio when you've never actually been through a project. Like what are you what is your portfolio about? 
here, what I would say is don't worry about trying to create three or four hypothetical um, case studies. There's no point. Create one. And, you know, you can say at the top of this, this is a hypothetical case study. This is going to be my first UX role, and I'm really excited about it. And I've created this to show you the way that I approach design and the way that, you know, and the things that are important to me throughout the design lifecycle. And what you can do, I always think these are more interesting. Instead of picking like something trivial, like a news website that you're redesigning or um, a pet groomers and creating a booking system for them, pick a product that everybody can get on board with. I'm talking Netflix, I'm talking YouTube, Google, Notion or Coda and design a new feature on top of that. And I want you to do a few things. I want you to come up with a problem statement that's totally hypothetical and fake. A good example might be on Loom, we want users to be able to create video conversations backwards and forwards. At the moment, videos are created once and then shared out to everybody. We want people to be able to reply back and comment with further videos, something like that. And then maybe if you're catching up with a conversation, you, Loom will cut them all together for you so that you get a nice stream of, of conversation through video, for instance. Um, take that as a problem statement. Design out some solutions. Do a little bit of fake testing. Speak to some people. Go on to usertesting.com and see if you can maybe get a few people to take a look through your ideas. Fake it till you make it. Get to the end of it and have a really nice, not only story to tell about just generally the, the, um, the process that you would go through, but also some killer visuals to show. This is how this feature might look. Who knows? You might get hired by Loom. That would be pretty awesome as well. But that's what I would do. I would give your recruiters, give your hiring managers something that they can look at and go, I know they didn't work for them, but geez, that's really cool. Okay. Uh, so I'll take this as the final question and then we'll wrap up and the rest of them will I'll do through the email. Would you say learning to code is a necessity or recommended just to understand the basics? Okay. So I'm biased, right? Like I'm, I'm an engineer by background. I love it when I see a designer who can code. I've known many designers who've decided to code just to create better relationships with their engineers. The reality is, unless it is your absolute passion and you're moonlighting as an engineer, you're probably not going to be able to pick up enough skills to maintain currency and relevancy. I mean, unless you're a genius, in which case I'm really sorry, I will back off. But I mean, I couldn't do this. Um, create that skill set and then maintain it as well as developing your own design craft. It's a lot of work. It is not necessary by any means. The majority of designers that I've worked with do not speak the language of code whatsoever. Now, talking about unique selling points, I think that if you can understand, there's a few things that I think you could understand. The basics of web programming so terms like this, you'd, even just the terms, even the shape of these terms is helpful to know. HTML, JavaScript, CSS. They're the first three. You need to know what they are and how they work with one another. Knowing this, even if they're not the languages that your engineers are touching, knowing that CSS controls styles and maybe even doing a a one-day CSS course to understand how it controls styles will help you infinitely. And the reason it will help you 
is because it will allow you to better translate your design ideas and your design intent into actionable conversations with your engineers. You'll be able to speak in their language just a little bit more than you could the day before. I would definitely say it's beneficial if you can get a tiny bit of understanding about how technology and languages work together to create the products that we design. Thank you so much. Have a great day and good luck with your next interview. Take care.